how do you best figure out our country, the United States of America? Uh, there's a theory that the study of one particular person may give you the best idea of America during the past half century. And that person, Lyndon B. Johnson, in his life, in his drive, in his energy, in his, uh, shall we say, detours from principle, and there were many indeed, may be a symbol of that drive to be it, number one. And there were a number of studies of LBJ, but certainly uh, the most thorough and one of the most exciting is that of Robert Caro, and it's volume one. You've heard it's the Book of the Month Club choice. Bob Caro, you recall, uh, is the Pulitzer Prize winner and National Book Award winner for his quite remarkable study of power in Robert Moses, the builder in New York, called the Power Broker. And again, power is the word. And this huge and remarkable uh, biography of Johnson, volume one, is called The, the Years of Lyndon Johnson. And uh, this particular volume is The Path to Power. There it is again, Knopf, the publishers, and uh, Bob Caro my guest today. In a moment, his reflections and the book after this message. Two of the men lying on the blanket that day in 1940 were rich. The third was poor, so poor that he had only recently purchased the first suit he had ever owned that fit correctly, and desperately anxious not to be. 32-year-old Congressman Lyndon Johnson had been pleading with one of the other two men George Brown, to find him a business in which he could make a little money. So when Brown, relaxing in the still warm autumn sun at the luxurious Greenbrier Hotel in the mountains of West Virginia, heard the third man, Charles Marsh, make his offer to Lyndon Johnson, he felt sure he knew what the answer would be. And this provocative opening paragraph introduction to Caro's book, Path to Power, sets us off. The a poor boy, 1940, poor young man, yes. and two very rich men. Yes. And Well, what I thought was significant about this was that the offer was for an oil interest worth almost three-quarters of a million dollars. But as much as Lyndon Johnson wanted money, and he wanted it desperately, he turned this offer down because he felt that accepting oil money would hurt him politically. So there's something else he wanted, more than money. Right. But we know he was not averse to a no. buck or two, as no. comes out in your volumes, this and others. Is that power? Yes, he, he knew that he wa needed that first. That was what he wanted most. You know the similarity you hear in Chicago? And the I read that, and he turned down the dough for that goal, the grail, power in office. It reminds so much of the late Richard J. Daly. It is astonishing. That, too, it wasn't money. He had a colleague named Tom Keene who went to the pokey for malfeasance and mishandling of funds. It was not money, did it? It was power. And here again, this parallel. So in Johnson, you heard the opening, my introduction, as it's no U.S. in the past half century. If there's one person, one president, or one person in political life, it's LBJ who gives a picture of a, of a society at a certain moment in history. I think that's right, because we see him in the land in which he was born, this hill country of Texas. When he was young, it was a uh, 
country without electricity, without money. We see the New Deal coming in and helping it. We see the Populist Party grew up there. And by the time Lyndon Johnson comes to power, Texas has come to power with its new oil money and the contractors and all. So we see that's why I call the book The Years of Lyndon Johnson, because you can't understand Johnson yeah. without understanding the years in yeah. which he lived. But throughout, there is this protagonist, this figure who has a drive. The key word, I suppose, the one word to describe LBJ, the word is energy. Energy, an energy that came from, I think, desperation and fear. Uh, his boyhood was so terrible that he would do anything to get out of it and stay out of the hill country and this brutal physical now labor. You begin. Now the book begins, and it's a saga. It's a saga of a section of the country and of a kind of people, Johnson's people. This hill country is southwest Texas, isn't it? Yes. And this is... We're talking of it at a certain time in the 20s and 30s. Yes. And a history, it has a history yeah. of, of strong populism. It was, that's where populism came from. The People's Party, which is what people refer to mean when they say the populace, was born uh, just a few miles north of Johnson City, where Lyndon Johnson grew up in a place called Limpasas, because the people up there, they were strong and energetic people, but they had come into this land that was too hard to make a living off, and they wanted government to help them, and they felt that, that it was the duty of government to help them. Yeah. They felt that. And so there is a father, Sam Ely Johnson, Lyndon's father, who is a man of principle, a populist, but he is not a success. In fact, he's a failure yes. by standards of what failure yes. is today. Yes. And therefore, we come to young Lyndon, and a certain he can go one of two ways, can't he? Well, he could follow his father, be an idealist, uh, or he could decide, as he did decide, that he, I, I think I have the sentence in the book, his mother was an idealist too, believed in principle, and he had seen what principles and ideals got them, and it wasn't going to get him. And so it was not his father he followed. No. It was others, and the others, this is what he saw. So when his father's legislator was saying, in Austin, Texas. Perhaps you should read that. His father was a legislator. And young Lyndon, how old was he then? <laughs> well, uh, he, when he was leaving for college, so he would have been like 18 then. He's, and uh, I talk about how his mother and his father wanted him so much to go to college to learn about beauty and truth. Now, finally, he went to college, only when he had no other way out. But he, I say that he wasn't going to go the way his parents wanted. In Austin... He had seen the legislators who accepted the beefsteak, the bourbon, and the blondes from the lobbyists, who lived at the Driscoll while his father lived at the boarding house. His father had refused to be like them, and he had seen what happened to his father. His mother had believed that poetry and beauty were the most important things in life, and she had refused to ever stop believing that, and he had seen what happened to his mother. The most striking characteristic of both his parents was that they were idealists who stuck to their ideals. They had been trying ever since he was a little boy to teach him that what mattered was principle and sticking to principle. Lyndon Johnson's college career and his career after college from beginning to end 
would demonstrate what he thought of their teaching. Yeah. And of course, that's the story of Johnson, to some extent the story of America, to make it to be number one. And so, by the way, you point out that this, this poverty-stricken area came from, the Depression came to them long, long before the crash <laughs> of 29. You know, in a way, they were never out of the they Depression. They were never out of it, yeah. <laughs> right. And so, he also told later on in years, he was a hit in many Washington circles, a young congressman, telling these tales of the poverty-stricken land. Yes. He was a great storyteller, and uh, he could talk. You know, when he was a young congressman, he could talk at these Washington parties and uh, hold the center of the room no matter who was there with his yeah. stories of Texas. He, by the way, he had to be. He had to be. In fact, Studs, if he was at a dinner party, this was incredible, to, and someone else started talking, and they wouldn't listen to him anymore, he'd fall asleep right at the table. Well, he literally put his head down at the table and go to <laughs> he sleep. <can't>. Right? <laughs> He's, look at me. Yeah, right. And so we come to college, San Marcos, the Southwest Texas Teachers College. Right. And now, since he, in a sense, disowned his own father, you know, certainly yes. ideologically, sense, psychically. Yes, he became, a, from now on, a professional son to, to older men. He knew how to use older men who were in power. Boy, he had a gift for that that was like nothing you've ever seen. You know, one of his tricks was he would literally, you've heard about people sitting at an older man's feet to soak up their wisdom. He would literally sit at their feet. If there was a professor at this college, and later he did it with Sam Rayburn and with Franklin Roosevelt, but he always did it with older men with power. He would sit on the floor. If they were in a chair and talking, he would sit at the floor looking up at them while he listened. Yeah. And so there is the president of the college, Evans. Right. And why don't you tell it how Johnson, in a sense, took over the college? Well, he took it over. First, he cultivated Evans until Evans really loved and relied on him. But what he really did was to create a political structure there. You know, po this was a little hill country teacher's college. The giving of jobs on this campus, the little 25 cent an hour uh, campus jobs was desperately important there because these kids were so poor that their only hope of getting out of the hill country, their only hope was to go to college and get a teacher's certificate. They couldn't go unless they had these jobs. The guy who was in charge of politics at this campus, the student council and all, he had the right to give out these jobs. Now, normally, this was done just like, as on any other campus, but Johnson created a uh, political structure there, got the power to do this, and once he got the power, he wouldn't give the jobs to anyone who didn't support him. He made people, his friends, say they had to ask, they had to come to him and ask. And he came out of this college with this political machine formed, and many of the guys in it were to be the basis of his machine in Texas for the next 35, 40 years. This was foreshadowing the Johnson of later, wasn't it? It's exactly. This was the, yeah. In your research, and we'll come to this in a moment, there was a very definite pattern established in the beginning. Yes. His goal, his principle, or more, is his lack of it. Right. But it was established then and that on that small college campus, wasn't it? Yes, we see Lyndon Johnson, the same pattern as you just put it, couldn't, I couldn't put it any better, followed him through his life. 
Uh, he would do the same things in every setup. So he took over. By the way, how, what did his fellow students think of him? Well, his fellow students uh, actively disliked him. You know, this is something the previous books on Johnson have portrayed him, you might say, as a popular, charismatic campus leader, like a Frank Merriwell of the Hill Country. But in fact, you look in the yearbook and you say his name was Bull Johnson. You see, he's constantly referred to as Bull Johnson, which meant the same yeah. thing then as it means now. And you ask the other kids, where did he get this name? And they say, because he was the biggest liar on campus. And more significant studs, because you know, in Vietnam, when Johnson was president, that was the era in which the words credibility gap were coined. And in Vietnam, he was accused of misleading the American people. They felt that he was a man so who could me. not tell the truth. Yes. So Tonkin Gulf, then, was a natural aspect of Johnson's life, you know, the lie of Tonkin yes. Gulf. Well, his life, th this untruthfulness, seems to follow throughout his life, yes. It seems to be, I mean, I'll never forget I had been hearing this and hearing this from the kids there, and one said, you know, the, the, the thing that mattered was that it seemed like he couldn't tell the truth. He had to lie about everything, big things and small. And if you caught him in a lie, he didn't care. You'd hear him 10 minutes later telling the same <laughs> lie to somebody else. We should point out Bob Carroll, the biographer. Uh, you, and so we have to, perhaps, a di not a digression, but how you came to the book. And you came to this project wholly admiring LBJ. Well, I, I, I had an image of LBJ. Yeah, I thought I was going to love him. <laughs> uh, I thought, you know, my first book, The Power Broker, I sort of fell in love with Alfred E. Smith, the great governor who raised Robert Moses to power. And I, I wrote a lot about Smith, and Smith was very poor. He was an Irish-American, uh, son of an immigrant. He was uneducated, but more than that, he hated reading. He hated education. He didn't want to read. He was a tough, shrewd, ruthless politician. But the driving thing under Al Smith was that he wanted to help his people, the Irish-Americans. Now, what did I know about Lyndon Johnson? Poor, uneducated, didn't like intellectual pursuits, shrewd, tough, ruthless politician. I had an idea that the dominant thing inside him was to help his people, the farmers, the, the rural poor. And so you guess, but this project began about seven years ago. Seven years ago. Perhaps describe it. Where uh, you saw th thousands of people, early those still alive, early friends, later ones, those who peripherally knew him. But you also went to the where. Where was this? In Austin? Yes, there's the... And what did you find there? Well, the Lyndon Baines Johnson Library there, of course, has these millions of documents, uh, some going all the way back to his uh, youth. You can find out almost anything you want to know in that library. I don't think you can spend a lot of time there and not know more about the inner workings of American politics than has ever been known before. You don't have to be and good. And so as you were going deeper and deeper into it, Right. And this is volume one we're talking right. about. That's about 800 pages. And the writing, by the way, is incredibly good. And we'll talk about the non-specific Johnson sequences, but speak of the place, uh, the condition of women, yes. uh, the housewife's work right. in Texas at Hamilton. Remarkable, you call it sad irons. Yes, because... It was so hard for them to do ironing because they didn't have electricity and they had to keep heating the irons over a wood fire.
they call them the same. And, and so you have it's sort of a social history as well, and an economic history as well as a biography of a, a figure. And so here's here is LBJ, and now Washington enters. He gets a call. There is a conservative, very wealthy young congressman named Richard Kleberg. Yes. Is he of the King Ranch? Yes. So he's a millionaire. Yes. <laughs> An anti-New Deal, of course. Oh, yeah. anti-New Deal now, all the way. <laughs> why you, Johnson gets a call to be his secretary. Yes. We're talking what year now? Uh, 1931. 31, the You're Depression. Right. right. And um, Johnson goes to Washington as his secretary and immediately starts working at this incredible pace where he's up at five o'clock every morning and he's going to sleep at midnight and he's working every day, seven days a week to do the best job he can for the district. But before Roosevelt came in, there isn't much he can do for the district because the federal government wasn't helping the farmers. Go ahead, now he, he spoke of the hours. This is an incredible story here of energy and those who were his subordinates. Now yeah. we come to his attitude because now he, he, he sort of took over as a matter of Yes, well, he Nature. took over the congressman's office. The congressman wasn't too interested in, in being a congressman, <laughs> and Johnson ran the office. Then, when the New Deal came in, we see his genius for government. Now, the Feder Roosevelt creates the New Deal's Federal Home Loan Bank Board, which was supposed to help farmers. But the farmers of Lyndon Johnson's district were so poor that he really couldn't help them. Uh, this act couldn't help them. And on one Tuesday in 1934, 67 of them were going, 33 rather, 67 of them were going to lose their farms. The sheriff was going to nail up the foreclosure notice. The act was passed on a Friday. Johnson had over the weekend, if he wanted to save these people's farms, he had to really invent a way of applying this new act, the Federal Home Loan Board Act, to these particular farmers. He had to persuade the Federal Home Loan Board to approve it. He had to get the president of the whole thing on the phone. He had to get the Texas appraisers on the phone, the mortgage companies. He did it all between Friday and Monday and raced down to Corpus Christi. And that night, the very day before these 67 farmers were going to lose their homes, he was able to tell yeah. them that they were saved. So he had this incredible drive and energy. And genius for government. And genius for government, because he also knew. One of the first things you have, he started asking, who knows who? Who does what? How does it work? And he, in a sense, became the congressman. Yes. But he, he, he wanted to know what the secret was to get something done. Now, he had a couple of young subordinates. And this is also a pattern, is it not? His attitude toward them. Yeah, yes, he, uh, we see this. These were two young men who had been, when he was a high school teacher, they had been his debaters. He was the debating coach. He brought them to Washington. They lived in the same room with him. They worked alongside him, and he worked them as unmercifully as you can imagine a human being uh, working. And this became his pattern throughout. Yes. But there's something here. There's another pattern emerges. He pretty much would bully those below him one way or another, you know, with a smile or with a scowl. He always He'd bully had. them, but he would toady to those up above. That, unfortunately, was his characteristic. He was a bootlicker and a bully yeah. at the same time. That's interesting. Sort of, someone called him at one moment there, uh, uh, Texas Uriah Heap. 
Yes. Well, that's in some in some respects that's what he reminded people of, toadying to those above him in the most abject, fawning yeah. way, but to those underneath him, his staff and all, just treating them like slaves. And yet, at that, and well, he himself worked as hard as they did. Oh yes. Yeah. Right. He would never. He showed a guy a trick. Uh, don't undo your tie. Just. Ron takes you to save time. I'd never heard that before because he didn't want to lose one minute, so he wouldn't untie his knife, <laughs> tie at night. He'd just loosen it and slip it over and his yet, head. And yet, few districts, reading from your book, end of this one chapter, few districts fared better under the New Deal's programs than this district with a junior congressman who opposed the New Deal, that's his boss, Kleberg, right. a congressman who seldom visited his office, Kleberg. Right. The district was only asset in Capitol Hill was a young secretary. That was LBJ, him. <laughs> right. Worked with a frantic, frenzied, almost desperate aggressiveness and energy. Before we continue with Washington, we, we forgot a certain chapter that's known in certain other biographies, and yours to some extent, as a glowing moment in his life, when he taught the little Mexican-American kids right. in a school in Catula. Right. Uh, why don't you speak of that? Well, when he was in college, he took off a year to be a teacher. He needed, uh, you know, money to continue at college. He went down to Catula, which was a little Mexican-American town down near the Texas border. Now, nobody who had, none of the, the American teachers, the Anglos who had taught down there, ever cared about teaching the Mexican kids. It was just a job to them. They almost felt the Mexicans didn't deserve to learn, that they were too shiftless and lazy in their opinion. Johnson the, taught these kids, one of them said, as if his life depended on them. He just kept saying to them, you can have a better life, just get an education. He worked with them. And the thing that was most amazing to me was because he had so much energy, if he worked with them early and late, that wasn't enough to use up the energy. So he took this elderly Mexican janitor, almost illiterate, and he bought him a grammar book and taught him English. He would teach him after school, sitting on the steps of this little school down there, and the loiterers across the street would be sitting in the vacant lot there laughing at him, and this big, tall, gangling college kid with the big ears, you know, would sit there hour after hour teaching the janitor English. Yeah, that's it. And yet, here's the strange thing, he displayed scant respect for their own culture. If a kid spoke Spanish, he'd whack them, the rationale, <laughs> rationale being learned. Right, right. But it reminds me, he had contempt for their culture. He wanted to, to be like him, and suddenly something leaps. This will be in volume three yes. of your work, I know. <laughs> Vietnam, if the Vietnamese would only be like us, like LBJ and us, we'd be fine but they wanted to be themselves. So you gotta knock them off. Is, is this, <laughs> this analogy apply? It certainly does. You know, he's teaching Mexican kids, yeah. right? And he's teaching them Texas history, yeah. and he's calling Santa Ana a murderer. Well, of course, ah, yeah. Santa Ana oh, was a, his, very a hero to them. He was you know, doing right? that. But by God, he's teaching them to be American. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we come back. So now we come back to, we come back to Washington. And so he serves his apprenticeship as the secretary redoes the job of uh, Kleberg, the con who does nothing. And his attitude toward the New Deal had come to something interesting. You know, his, uh, his worship of FDR, uh, certainly outwardly. Yeah. And now Johnson and the New Deal. 
Well, you know, Johnson and the New Deal is an example of how his principles would always change regarding uh, according to what would help him at the moment. He was elected congressman at the age of 28. His, his assistant said, what is our platform? You know, he said, our platform is Roosevelt, Roosevelt, Roosevelt. I mean, nothing but Roosevelt, 100 yeah. percent for Roosevelt. And when he got to Washington, he became friendly with Roosevelt. And Roosevelt helped him. Roosevelt did one thing after another for him. Um, and uh, he implemented the New Deal in that district and used its programs magnificently. But the moment he felt that Ro the New Deal and Roosevelt couldn't help him become senator, which is what he wanted to be next, he turned on the New Deal. Yeah, that, of course, is the, how this particular volume ends, yes. the shift we see. But here is his drive to whatever will help him, and incidentally help some of his constituents. Right. But he became another kind of chief, didn't he? The boss of the little Congress, perhaps you describe this. He was not simply a congressman's secretary. He became the secretary. Well, here we see ex he did exactly what he did at college. You know, at college, he took a social club, the White Stars, turned it into a political organization, got himself political power from it, and one of the ways he did it was to steal elections in college. They couldn't believe it. I mean, no one had cared about the elections, and here Lyndon Johnson was stealing them. On Washington, there was this organization of all the congressional assistants, the little Congress. Nobody cared about that organization. But Johnson saw if he could take it over, he could get p power from it. He did, again using stolen elections. He became what was known as the boss of the little Congress, and he became, in the world of Capitol Hill when he was only 23 years old, quite a, a notable figure. So they knew something. Others began to know. Also, if you want to know about something, uh, sort of devious things, a little how to get something done. See this kid. Yes, that's right. They saw he had a genius for government. And when did he start? But all the time he's doling out little favors here and there to be remembered later on. I mean, he would call in due bills later on. Yes. He always did that. This, by the way, is a remarkable, a remarkable similarity to the late mayor of Chicago, Daly. He would also call in due bills later, as he did way back long before he became mayor. Afterwards. So uh, it's a question of how power is achieved and how one goes about getting it. And Johnson is, before we take a break, uh, it's also beginnings of his double dealing come in when uh, he was a new dealer. And people thought he was a liberal, didn't they? The, uh, the liberals thought he was a liberal. The conservatives thought he was a conservative. But then he started smearing guys, too, way back in the early days when a guy ran against a rather mild oh, liberal, right, ran against Kleberg. Right, you know, right, and he would, you know, his, his technique was to paint the guy as a communist or a radical, you know. They, uh, they used this uh, slogan, your heart is black and your mind is red, you know, which was uh, like uh, buzzwords for you're a communist, and of course that was very effective in Texas. But since he is also looking for power, there are older men who are in it, yeah. And so there was the president of the college, whom he took over, uh, Roosevelt, whom he handled pretty well for a long time. Yes. And then, of course, there's Sam Rayburn. Rayburn was the greatest. So we come to Rayburn, don't we, of Texas. Yes. What, uh, 
perhaps this one description of Rayburn at the beginning is a remarkable portrait. Was he, would you call him a genuine populist? Rayburn was the true populist, and I tried to sum him up. You want me to read this? Sure. In this way. Rayburn. Rayburn, who hated the railroads, whose freight charges fleeced the farmer, and the banks, whose interest charges fleeced the farmer, and the utility companies, which refused to extend their power lines into the countryside, and thus condemned the farmer to darkness. Rayburn, who hated the railroads and the banks and the Republicans, because he never forgot who he was or where he came from. So this was That was Rayburn. the great man. But didn't he change later on when he said to get along, go along? Not, not really, Studs. Uh, Rayburn uh, would say that, and he had to be quiet for a long time and get along in Congress, but he never abandoned his principles. Rayburn was the true populist, and when he became speaker, he implemented those principles, and he helped the, the rural farmers uh, in America well, more than any other man. Since he was a powerful senior congressman from Texas and soon-to-be speaker, he was cultivated by this young uh, secretary who became uh, congressman. Well, one of the saddest things was in, to find out about was the true story, which had never really been told of Rayburn and Lyndon Johnson. You know, Rayburn was the fiercest of men. His face was like a, a rock, you know, and a mask. But he was terribly lonely. He had always wanted a family. He had no family. He had no children. Lyndon Johnson and his wife, Lady Bird Johnson, sort of made themselves, or Lyndon Johnson made himself, into Rayburn's family. And every Sunday, Rayburn would come to their house, and Lady Bird Johnson would cook uh, she told me she learned to cook Mr. Sam's foods, you know, chili, homemade peach ice cream, the way he liked them. And after breakfast, he and Lyndon would sit around reading the Sunday papers. And it was a father-son relationship. And every time that Johnson needed something, Rayburn was there to help him. You know, once when Johnson was young, he got pneumonia and was very sick in Washington. And Rayburn sat by his bed all night. And he was afraid to move because uh, he didn't want to wake Lyndon up. And when Lyndon woke up in the morning, Rayburn's jacket and his vest were covered with cigarette ashes because he hadn't wanted to get up and brush them away. And the minute Lyndon got up, Rayburn leaned over to him, this fiercest of men, and said, Now, Lyndon, don't worry about anything. Anything you need, just call on me. Now, shortly thereafter, Johnson wanted something. He wanted to be the director of the National Youth Administration in Texas. Rayburn was a man who would never ask anyone for a favor, never. But for Lyndon Johnson, he begged. He went to the office of the old Texas Senator, Tom Connolly, who had the patronage over the uh, National Youth Administration, and Connolly says, Rayburn would not leave my office until I promised to give the job to Lyndon Johnson. And of course, he became the head of the National Youth Administration right. of Texas, the youngest in the country. Right. And we'll come to this in a moment. And also a big event in his life, meeting money at the very opening of this program the opening of your book you speak of two very wealthy powerful men and the young poor kid and we'll come to the relationship to oil money brown and root and alvin wirtz the lobbyist and uh, johnson's role from then on right. principal role really so we come to another aspect in which something new entered politics money always did but not money from a central source right yeah 
Talking to, to Bob Caro, Robert Caro, Robert A. Caro, Pulitzer Prize winner, National Book Award winner, for his remarkable biography of Robert Moses. The new one, one we're talking about is The Path to Power, which is this first volume, but a book in itself, The Years of Lyndon Johnson, uh, from Johnson's beginnings to losing a, this first senatorial race and the change beginning to take place. And, Alfred Knopf of the publishers will resume in a moment after this message. So resuming with Robert Caro and the saga, because it is a saga, Johnson. So as the head of the NYA, part one of the New Deal agencies to keep youth in school and at work to provide, Johnson again was dispensing Yes, but he, you know what he was showing here was his genius at government. I mean, he was the best director of the National Youth Administration. You know, his aides, the, the young guys he brought in with him, said to me, you know, they would describe how Johnson inspired them. He'd say, get them to work, put them to work, get them off the streets, put them to work, get them out of the boxcars. And he would work endlessly. One guy said to me, you know, when you worked for Lyndon Johnson, Days made no difference and nights made no difference. Weekdays, weekends made no difference. Every day was the same. All you did was work. And he made us feel that we were part of the most important mission of our time. And uh, he made us do the impossible. Yeah. Now, he was still not yet congressman. He was already engineering things for big boys. There was, there was, he met now Brown. Was it Herman Brown? Well, that was a little later, actually. Oh, it was when he was Congress. Oh, Congress. <laughs> right. Well, let's go to Congress. Oh, now okay. he's going to run for Congress. Right. And here's something interesting. He knew how to campaign, didn't he? He was the greatest campaigner. You know, campaigning in the Hill Country wasn't like campaigning today, studs. We can hardly imagine what it was like. If, if he talked to 20 people, that was a big crowd. You'd, you'd get up on a wagon bed in one of these little towns in the Hill Country and talk to 10 or 15 people or less, and you'd walk around down the main street shaking hands, and Johnson would have this way of shaking hands that, pe I mean, it was just unbelievable. He'd, he'd hold out his hand and he'd say, I need your helping hand. Will you give it to me? And he kissed, you know, he had this hugging and mm. kissing, the pressing of the flesh. It was a legend in the hill country to the point where one farmer told me that his wife insisted that they go to this Lyndon Johnson rally hundreds of miles away, or 150 miles away, I think it was. And the farmer said, you just want to go because he'll kiss you. And on that day, the wife was sick, so the husband went alone, and he came back, and he said to his wife, you know, he kissed me. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he was a great he campaigner. Would, now is the energy. He wouldn't miss a bet, whereas his opponents would cover, I suppose, uh, Dallas or wherever, wherever it was in the district, Austin or it might be. But he would cover the rural. He would cover every aspect. He went he? where no one went before. Uh, he, this was a vast rural area, and the farms were very thinly separated. The population was like really one per square mile averaged out. And he would drive endless miles over bumpy roads to go to a farm that no one had ever visited, no candidate. And over and over again, people would say, you know, that boy Lyndon Johnson was to vis visit me. He's the first candidate I've ever seen. Now, on, ele on election day, these farmers, you know, for a poor farmer, his time is the most valuable thing he has, and for him to give up a whole day is quite a sacrifice. On Election Day 1937, thousands of these farmers loaded their families into a car and drove 
to these polling places to repay Lyndon Johnson by giving him their vote. And so he's elected to Congress. Congress. Right. And now Roosevelt, of course, I'd heard of him as NYA had, and he pointed him. And there's Roosevelt now hearing about this young. Here again, now he's winning Roosevelt, isn't he? Yes. And Roosevelt, you know, he was personally fond of him because Johnson was a professional son to him. But more than that, as one of Roosevelt's aides put me, put it to me, you've got to understand, these were two political geniuses. When Roosevelt talked to Johnson, I think uh, he meant, Johnson understood what he was talking about, and Roosevelt knew it. You know, Roosevelt said to Harold Dickies, if I hadn't gone to Harvard, this is the kind of uninhibited young politician that I might have been. He said, and in the next couple of generations, the balance of power in this country is going to shift to the South and West, and this kid might be the first Southern president. You know, that's precisely what I have marked right here at this moment, the oh. thing you just offered. <laughs> okay. So he knew that. I just had a funny call, says someone, following this, what you just read, from Harry Hopkins, a Roosevelt advisor. Did you ever hear of some kid in Congress named Lyndon Liddy Johnson, he called him? And what's he doing? And Johnson knew then, didn't he, the secret, that the government not run by one man, seemingly, or by 200 million, but about 100 guys or so, uh, as, as an echelon, uh, yes, a hierarchy he, of power yeah. here. And he got to know all of them, and he made friends with all of them. So he knew that, and so he had Roosevelt. And now there's a marvelous anecdote here that's almost a metaphor, a photograph of FDR, of young LBJ, and the governor of Texas in Allrod, and how Johnson was able to manipulate to elbow all right, out of the <laughs> Well, you know, you see this in an old newsreel. It's yeah. fantastic to see that uh, Roosevelt is standing there waving, and All Red is waving, and Johnson is on the other side waving. And gradually, All Red, uh, Johnson is moving toward the center, and All Red is sort of disappearing yeah. from the picture. Yes. And subsequent photographs, all right, is, uh, is completely airbrushed out. out. Right, right. <laughs> but he knew how to elbow his way next to power. By the way, that's always, I said metaphor too, just a phrase, elbowing his way to power. Yes. Elbowed his way. Yeah. Or hugged his way. Hugged his way, elbowed hugged his, his way. way. And now we can't forget there's power another way. There's money around Texas, a new kind of money oil money, and they had some contractors, Brown and Root. Right, Brown and Root. Uh, Johnson got them uh, big federal contracts in Texas. Now 1940 comes along, and um, Johnson is still a junior congressman, and with his fellow congressmen, he's very unpopular. They, they don't much like him because he's trying to boss them around, and they're not going to stand for it. He doesn't have any power of his own. But part of his genius was seeing a way to power that no one else saw. And in this year, in October of 1940, he saw something that no one else saw. The oil people in Texas, the new wildcatters like the old Clint Murkison and Sid Richardson, had recently, very recently, struck it big in the East Texas pool. Brown and Root had a lot of money because of federal contracts, and Brown and Root wanted more. They needed the federal government. And Lyndon Johnson needed, and a lot of Democratic congressmen needed money to campaign. And they didn't have it that year. They were very short on funds. Johnson persuaded Brown and Root, Herman Brown, the old president, and the Wildcatters to give money. 
but to give only through him. So the congressman had to come to him and ask for money. Now, let's say October 1st, 1940, he's still an unpopular junior congressman. Five weeks later, on Election Day, November 4th, he was a man with real power on Capitol Hill because he had financed the campaigns of 78 congressmen, and in part, but in large part. And they knew they were going to have to come back to him for money in two years. And he was a different figure. Then. There was a calling in do bills. Yes. Now, this is interesting. He got the oil money, and they were backing New Deal congressmen, yes. even though they were violently anti-New Deal, anti-labor. Right. And, uh, they, and they did this because they needed to keep the oil depletion allowance and other favors. They needed to get contracts. And they didn't really care as long as their selfish interests were preserved, they would give to whomever Lyndon Johnson So LBJ asked. then knew all these aspects, so his hands were out in all directions. Even uh, as a very young man. Yeah. Even young man. He was almost the marionetteer. Yes. He was That's a very good only, image. I he was doing that, that, wasn't he? Yes. He held the strings in his hand, and he's a young guy. So their power, again, was the drive. And these guys who hated the New Deal anti, and didn't mind getting the money at the time, you see. That was it. And, and there's another aspect of Johnson, perhaps we can't discuss too much in the book, a chapter on a private life. A woman, Alice Glass, was quite remarkable. Yes. And she, uh, a factor in Johnson's young manhood at that time. She was quite a factor, and, and uh, she was a very, not only was she a very beautiful woman, and the the owner of this magnificent estate in Virginia that she turned into a salon, but she was also a very astute political advisor to Johnson. And in fact, at one stage where his political career was in trouble, she engineered the compromise that, that saved it. But she was very liberal-minded and enlightened by uh, certain standards. Uh, yes. And she was fooled by LBJ. She I mean, they had an affair. Uh, she loved him, obviously, it appears from your book, but she thought he was an idealist. Yes. She so th he was there <laughs> doing everything. She thought he was going to save the world. Uh, and he had, you know, this potential for enormous good. But toward the end, I didn't, uh, when she's an older woman in the Vietnam War, she burned all the letters. Yes. She would have nothing to do with anybody who played a role in the Vietnam War. Well, a relationship, you know, goes through ups and downs, yeah. but uh, she really thought that the Vietnamese War was a horror. But they were he was able to fool almost anybody, every aspect of life. He seemed to have this belief that he could fool anyone, and you know something? For a long time, he did. He did. Yeah. And so, another a good aspect, another aspect involving the New Deal was his bringing electricity. We forget that most of America was rural back in those days, and most of rural America had no electricity until the late 30s. Yes, and his area not only didn't have electricity as late as 1938 and 39 and 1940, but there didn't seem to be any hope that they could get electricity. So when I would go around and talk to these elderly farm women, so many of them were very stooped, almost unnaturally stooped, and they'd said to me, 
You know how stooped I am? That's from hauling the water because you see without an electric pump, you have to bring, and it always fell to the wives to bring because the men were out in the fields working, the kids were at school, to haul this water up from these deep hill country wells. And the buckets were so heavy that they'd have to lean on the ropes just to get the buckets up. Then they'd put a yoke around their shoulders and carry two buckets at a time. Now, the Agriculture Department says that the average farm family uses 300 gallons of water a day. That's 73,000 a year or 3,000 tons of water that a farm wife had to carry, most of it herself, during a year. She had to do the wash. Uh, for a big family by herself and the ironing by herself. And these women were old. When Lyndon Johnson was campaigning for Congress, he would say to them, if you elect me, I'll bring electricity, and then you won't look like mm. your mother looked at 40. Yeah, it's, it, this is a fascinating aspect because you mentioned Clyde Ellis in your book. Yeah. Congressman Arkansas speaks of it, and you have a reference to they saw electricity, and they thought the house was on fire. Right, when and the Ellis's, lights went on. <laughs> and Ellis's can remember his mother turning on the electric light and suddenly there's a little glow, a glimmer, and it lit up and she starts crying and it, the whole town celebrated. And we forget this was, he's about 1940. Yes, it was like he came, this yeah. land, he brought him into the 20th century. I mean, the people Ellis. there, uh, not, well, Lyndon Johnson in the yeah. Hill Country, the people of the Hill Country said, before Lyndon Johnson, we were living in the Middle Ages. He brought us into the 20th century. And so this is a good aspect of what he did. Now we come to something interesting, because also votes came back to him, which is okay. There were these liberal congressmen, those who were involved with legislation, LaGuardia, for one, uh, Maury Maverick. By the way, Johnson's relation to Maverick, who was, who was a battling uh, liberal back in Texas, San Antonio, was interesting. He shifted when Maverick lost, he dropped him like a hot potato. <laughs> that was, I'm afraid that was Johnson's uh, character. But there was no legislation ever he was responsible, was there? No, uh, the thing about him was he never wanted, for his district, bringing the electricity, et cetera, getting projects for the district. He was great. For national legislation, he wouldn't introduce bills. He wouldn't fight for anyone else's bills. He'd never argue even in the privacy of the cloakrooms. Helen Gahagan Douglas, who was a friend of his and a very keen observer, would told me once that she'd see Lyndon Johnson at a party in an evening. And all evening, he'd be talking. He wouldn't let anyone else talk. He'd talk and talk for hours telling stories. And at the end of the evening, she'd realize he hadn't said anything. He'd never say one thing that years in the future, down the road, people could come back and say, but you said this, mm. because he knew what his ambition was. Oh, way in the back of his mind, also, he knew not to say something specific that might come back to haunt him if the climate of the country changed. That's what I'm saying, yes. Yeah. Uh, so we've, we're still talking about that move upward, always on his mind. And so we come to his other mentor again, Rayburn. Now it's 1940. And there's a big question about Roosevelt running for a third term. Yeah. And there is the vice president, Cactus Jack Gardner, right. who is violently anti-New Deal, anti-labor, anti. He has a pecan farm, which his Mexican laborers work as serfs. Yes. Well, 
this was, you know, this was one of the saddest things because when I talked that Johnson would do almost anything to get ahead, we see it exemplified in Rayburn, who had helped him so much. And um, here, he has to betray Rayburn. Garner had been Roosevelt's man in Texas. He had the New Deal authority in Texas. Now Garner and Roosevelt were great enemies, and Roosevelt needed a new man in Texas. Well, and Garner's going to challenge Roosevelt for the presidency. He did challenge Right, he mm. did challenge him. And he needed a new man in Texas, therefore. And Rayburn, who was the speak majority leader of the House, soon to be the Speaker of the House, was the logical choice. But Johnson wanted that job, and to get it, he's really betrayed Rayburn. Nobody was more loyal to the New Deal than Sam Rayburn. I mean, he was a rock on which a lot of this New Deal legislation was built, and he idolized Roosevelt. You know, on his table back home in Bonham, he had two pictures of Robert E. Lee and Franklin D. Roosevelt, Rayburn did. But Johnson persuaded the White House and persuaded Roosevelt that Rayburn was really against Roosevelt that he was leading a stop Roosevelt movement. Now, this was false. He did this. He, this is in detail in the book. You describe the tricks he used. So he double-crossed Rayburn. He betrayed him, mm. yes. And he got the job that he wanted. At the end of this episode, he is Roosevelt's mm. man in Texas with the New Deal power. And Rayburn really was never to reestablish his uh, relationship with Roosevelt as, as he wanted. So, and when there's a compromise, finally, with a safe face for Garner, right. like a first ballot vote for Garner by the Texas delegation, but a tremendous support for Roosevelt, right. the telegram is signed, or the, rather signed by two. Right. Rayburn, who must be furious, Sam, and this young <laughs> Johnson. Equal. Equal. equal in power equal. now. Equal. Rayburn was so baffled he couldn't understand what was happening. He was being made to sign a telegram. He, the majority leader, I think by this time he was Speaker of the House. No, Speaker or Majority Leader. Yeah. And Lyndon Johnson was on the same footing as him. And Roosevelt wouldn't let that telegram be sent unless the, both names were on it equal. And so now Johnson has reached a new plateau of power. Right. And what was the relationship of Rayburn to Johnson from that moment on? Well, for a time, I, I never was able to fully determine whether Rayburn knew what Johnson did to him, whether he ever found out. But he had an idea. And for a time, the relationship cooled and ended. In 1940, however, later in 1940, as I... I there came the saving of the Democratic congressman with the oil man's money. Now, this saved Rayburn's speakership. And Rayburn was a man who always paid his debts, and he knew he owed Lyndon Johnson a lot for this. The relationship gradually reestablished itself. I think a large part of it, which no one has really understood, you know, people keep saying, how did a guy like Sam Rayburn like a guy like Lyndon Johnson? I think a large part of the answer had to do with Mrs. Johnson, Lady Bird Johnson, of whom Rayburn was paternally so fond, you know, she was like a, a daughter to him. And gradually the relationship reestablished itself and Rayburn was to again help Johnson's career. Because yeah, one of the big, this again a side item, uh, but it's in your book throughout, how could Lady Bird, who was one of seams of generosity of spirit and openness and honesty, yes. how could she stand <laughs> through the years, his double-crossing, infidelities, everything, not that, but the general different approach to life it would seem. 
Well, in this early period, you know, the, things change, and her personality, you know, we see her in this book as a very shy, diffident young woman. Uh, her transformation into the poised, gracious, dignified, and very intelligent first lady is one of the thrilling things to write about. In this early part, I don't think that she really was familiar with her husband's political maneuverings completely. Let's come, but we have to come back again. Now he's representing, that's what he always wanted to represent, uh, oil and money. He's the, in a sense, he's the lobbyist in Congress. Yeah. Because his, his, one of his mentors is the great oil lobbyist, Wirtz. Yes. Alvin Wirtz. Yes. And so now he's New Deal, but not New Deal. He's both at once. Uh, he, was with wh he was whatever suited his purposes at the moment. And so we come toward the end of your book and his one defeat and the change in Johnson now as he sees an anti-New Deal feeling in the country. He's running for the Senate. Yes. Okay. Now, something happens. He's running against, and he seems like he's got it. He, yes. Uh, he's against, he's running against Martin Dyes, the un-American. But he never challenged the Dyes committee, did he? No, no. He, he, but he was really running against this fabulous governor of Texas. Yeah. Leo Daniel was yeah. known as Past the Biscuits Papio. Papio. <laughs> yeah. Right. I know Daniel beats him in 1941 because, as one of Johnson's aides told me, he stole more votes than we did. So here is a great irony. It's a comedy. Here is a burlesque. You know, Johnson, we know that Johnson stole elections, whether it be in college or elsewhere, and there's an incident of ballot boxes in an earlier campaign, I think. Yeah. And now his election is stolen from him. Yes. By Pappy in the rural community. Yes. Is that it? So we have a comic twist here. A comic twist. He relaxed Johnson. He thought he had won. And while he was relaxing, the election was stolen from him. And so this is a tremendous blow, oh my God, to his ego, to everything, isn't it? <laughs> Losing when he thought he had it sewed up. There, it, it was actually, you know, you feel for him. I think I wrote a paragraph in there. He had worked so hard all his life, and he had won. He had relaxed for one day. And he lost. Oh, that was it. He relaxed. He took a sleeping pill, relaxed. And while he was, he who never relaxed. Right. And while he was relaxing, the ballot boxes so were that stolen. Was the end. And so toward the end of the book, the war now begins, Pearl Harbor. And now Johnson is definitely shifting. He's now condemning, uh, using the cliches now, federal bureaucracy. And, uh, you know, the overstaffed, overstuffed. Now he's talking like the other boys. Yes because he senses an anti-New Deal spirit in the land. And so how do we end this conversation? Because uh, the book, uh, my guest is Robert Caro, who's won a number of awards for his previous book about Robert Moses, the power broker, and this book is about the power man indeed, the path to power, the years of Lyndon Johnson. This is until this moment, from his beginnings to his defeat for the Senate, and then regrouping his forces. What are we left with now, then? <laughs> well, volume two is Lyndon Johnson finally winning his seat in the Senate, be dominating the Senate as no man in history has dominated it as Senate majority leader, ruling the Senate, the master of the Senate, then wanting to be president, going for the presidency, being defeated by Kennedy, becoming the vice president, 
and volume two ends with the assassination, the last scene is him being sworn in on the plane. And further, volume three, no he doubt, the presidency in the Vietnam War right. and the it's resignation. It's the presidency of Lyndon Johnson. But there's one last thing, there's so many things, Alter. We started in the beginning saying to understand America, we've been the past half century, study LBJ. His use of money in campaigns, he became the guy, he revolution. Today, what we see, you know how dough is used to help candidates, controlled money is used, is really a Johnson invention, an innovation. In large sense it is, thanks. Robert A. Caro, my guest, The Path to Power, Alfred A. Knopf, the publishers, available and powerful indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you.